begin this morning with a confession. This past week, in just a matter of a couple of days, not once, but twice, I said or did things that were really not examples of the kind of love that God has demonstrated. The first happened one day with Cindy. And I was joking. But as is the case often with humor, sometimes our humor goes just a little bit further than we really should. And before I got very far from this building, within 15 minutes or so, I contacted Cindy and said, I am sorry. Would you forgive me? Graciously, she said she wasn't offended by what I had said and did forgive me. And then on Friday, I, I did something that probably, although it was not directly aimed at my wife, it was something that she perceived as not being real loving. They questioned the depth of my love for her. And so once again, I said to her, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And then from Friday afternoon through the evening and even continuing into my walk on Saturday, I questioned whether or not I really had the right to stand before you this morning and talk to you about the love of God. See, it does matter. It does matter that in both cases, I went to the person directly and apologized. But then I didn't stop there. I also went to my Father in Heaven and said, Father, not only have I sinned against them, I have sinned against You. So, well, if I, if Cindy wasn't offended, uh, uh, maybe obviously it wasn't a sin. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Because you see, sin is not a list of things that are right and wrong. Sin is about relationships. 
And when we know we have done something to break or hinder or harm a relationship, we have sin. And sin not only affects our relationship with those people, it affects our relationship with God. And you know what? I might have been this way for a long time. In fact, with humor, I have been. And I might not be able to overcome this tendency completely. Although I work harder and harder all the time to try to do it. But you know what? That doesn't make it right. <laughs> Nor does it excuse me. Nor does it mean that I shouldn't strive to change. And God forgive me if I ever stop trying or try to get people to stop trying to help me with those sins and those shortcomings. I need that feedback or I will never come overcome those failures. If I've been critical or judgmental, I need to apologize to the person and repent to God. You see, scripturally speaking, gossip, slander, backbiting, nose-raised finger-pointing, they're not only sins, but they're sins that are as bad as murder or adultery. They appear in the same list in the Bible. And therefore, it not only separates us from others, but it brings into question whether or not we even know God. That's right. That's what John says. That's what we've been looking at this month. Because of their overreaction, and understandably so, since the Reformation, we have been teaching wrongly about grace. Listen to me closely so you don't miss the point. Grace is unconditioned. We cannot earn it. But grace is not unconditional. There is an expected response by us to the grace of God. As our call to worship this morning, Jesse took us back to where we began this series of sermons at the beginning of the month by reading as a poem the song, The Love of God. And yes, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can tell. And yes, the wandering child is reconciled and again made whole. But how? By accepting God's beloved Son as not only Savior, but as the Lord of their life, responding to the grace by means of faithful, loyal, obedient service. Dallas Willard, in his fabulous book, The Great Omission, Reclaiming Jesus' Essential Teachings on Discipleship, and I highly recommend the book, The Great Omission. He writes, Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. 
Learning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace is unconditioned. We can't earn it. But it is not unconditional. I've shared with you this month how I believe that 1 John 4, 7-16, which is actually a part of our text this morning, that in that passage we get down to the very foundation of Christian love. That God is love. And when defining God, the most accurate predicate adjective or predicate noun, however you might look at that, is simply love. Earlier in the letter, 1 John chapter 2, verses 7-11, John develops the idea that love for the brethren is proof of fellowship with God. Then in chapter 3, verses 10-14, to 14, love for the brethren is presented as proof of being children of God versus children of the devil. In fact, in 1 John 3.10, he writes, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We are identified as Christians, not by what we might say, not even confessing, but by doing what is right, and secondly, by loving your brothers and sisters. But here it is in 1 John 4, 7-16, that we discover why love is such an important part of the love that is real. Love is a valid test of our fellowship and our sonship because God is love. Love is a part of the very being and nature of God. And if we are united to God through faith in Christ, then we share His nature. He has put the image, His image in us. And since His nature is love, the love is a test of the reality of our spiritual life. Now this is our last sermon in this series. We're going to start Romans next Sunday and I was hoping that the little booklets on Romans would be here for you so that you could start reading ahead. Uh, I have ordered them. Uh, but let me re briefly review what we've established. We started the first of the month by sharing the extent of God's love. John 3.16 That God loved the world to such an extent that He gave His only Son to die a horrendous death death on a cross in order that those who are willing to demonstrate their allegiance, their loyalty to Him can have eternal life and abundant life. And that He didn't send Jesus to condemn. No. He sent Jesus for the purpose of restoration, reconciliation, and salvation. Now on the second Sunday of the month, Van Hollis came and by means of the parable of the prodigal son, he shared with you a bit about God's love for the lost. That unlike any respectable Jewish man of that day, God, as represented by the Father, loves His lost child so much that He is willing, He is watching, He is waiting for His return, and when He sees them, and in His parable, Jesus says, still a long way off. He 
runs to meet him, embracing him with a kiss. You see, no respectable Jewish man would run. Not in that day. The Orthodox Jews that I know from my childhood in Louisville, Kentucky, their dads, you won't see my dad running. God runs to meet His lost child. Why? Because God is love. And then last week, I shared with you from Romans 8, 31-39, that God's love is everlasting. That nothing can separate us from the love of God because if God is for us, and we know that He is, it's a first-class conditional sentence. It's not raising a question. If God is for us, it really doesn't matter who's against us. That God is willing to work with us there is a verb used in that verse that is a verb that means coactivity. Unfortunately, it doesn't get translated that way for some reason. I don't know why. But God is willing to work with us for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. God who justifies is our judge. And Jesus, who is the only one who has a right to condemn, is our advocate. How can it get any better than that? Now, my image for this morning comes from a fairly popular show. According to the ratings, that is. It's the show Fear Factor. Any watchers? I see a couple of hands. It's a show about people being required to do disgusting things to over show that they can overcome their fear just to get money. Like, get down in a vat filled with snakes. Go up onto extreme heights. Get put into absolute darkness for an extended period of time. And I, I think probably every one of us has a fear of something in there. Storms, darkness, heights, snakes. In our text for today, we're going to see two things. That when God has perfected His love in us, there is, or at least should be, no fear of judgment. Listen to me. Because this is one of those verses that's been so misused and quoted out of context. When John writes, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear, he's not talking about snakes and heights and darkness and storms. He's talking about judgment, punishment, standing before the throne on judgment day. But there is an ought factor. Listen to what I've identified as the key verse. It's verse 21. And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must... You hear that word? Whoever loves God must love also his brother. Now, who did Jesus 
defined as our brother or neighbor. Well, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was the person that everybody hated. It was the Samaritan, not the priest, not the Levite, not the scribe. None of those did what they were supposed to do neighborly. It was that person that everybody hated. Samaritans. Half-breeds. Translated to 21st century. Those Latinos, Mexicans, those people from Guatemala that are all around. Or the blacks. We must also love our brothers. And in terms of our love as believers, since the nature of God is love, and as a person who knows God and has been born of God, will respond to God's nature, then as a compass naturally points north, as believers, we should naturally be practicing love because love is the nature of God. So let's dig into our text. That was just the introduction. <laughs> Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I love to say that word. Propitiation. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us. Second time you said it. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has been not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. May God add His blessing to our reading of this Word this morning. Must. Ought. Now I want to use the word love this morning as an acronym. Using each letter of the word. L, O, V, and E. To emphasize a point regarding the life that you and I should be living. 
And hopefully that will help us to, to enable it to stick in our minds a bit. And the first one is, is that we must or we ought to live through Him. Verse 9, In this the love of God is made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Now I hope you understand, we've been given the definition of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13. The very nature and essence of love requires that it grow in a willing heart. Now let me repeat that for emphasis. The very nature and essence of love requires that it grow in a willing heart. Sadly, there are many people who cannot experience the fundamental reality that God loves and enjoys them being in His presence. In fact, some people would even argue that God could not possibly be in love with them. Yet, as we saw from the very first week by looking at John 3.16, and we're reminded here in 1 John, that God loves us to the extent that He gave His only begotten Son. He sent His only Son into the world so that we could live through Him. We can't do it on our own. More often than not, when we try to be patient and kind, when we try not to envy or boast, when we work really hard at being not being arrogant or rude or irritable or resentful, we fail. What a person believes about God is the most important thing contained in his or her mind because it affects everything about that person. Believe it. Believe that God loves you so much that He sent His Son for you because of how sinful you are. And, and me, of course. And though you can't do it on your own, you can live a sacrificial life of love through Him. Secondly, because of God's love, we ought to offer ourselves. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 12.1? That we are to present or offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. In our text for today, John says that if God so loved us, and we know that to be true, then we also ought to love one another. Verse 11. How? Sacrificially. Why? Because love, as defined by God, is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. So we offer ourselves not our wisdom, not our criticisms, not our haughty attitudes, but we offer our very selves sacrificially and lovingly. Thirdly, V, we need to value the confidence that we can enjoy. Verse 17. And again, you might ask how. So go back and see what John wrote to us. God is love, and whoever abides in love because 
abides in God and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that purpose clause so that why is love perfected with us? So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. Love casts out fear. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I am not afraid of death. I am confident that though I am human, therefore sinful, that God will accept me and renew me eternally by means of the gift of resurrection. There are many things that could happen to me as a part of life that cause me far more fear than death. I cannot imagine, cannot imagine being a quadriplegic. That frightens me. Far more than dying. I can't imagine being locked inside of my own self, unable to communicate. There's a really good book written by a little boy who finally broke out of his autism. And he talked about how he so desperately wanted to communicate but could not get his mind and his mouth to work together to say words. I can't imagine that. Death does not scare me as that possibility. I know that I'm not perfect, but I also know that because of God's love and because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, I am perfectly forgiven. You hear the difference? And that leads me to my final point. What we need to strive for. Where we need to put our efforts. We need to work earnestly to escape from the vicious cycles of this world. I think that's what he's talking about in verses 18 to 21. And it all begins by escaping the cares of this world and making sure that we don't live beyond our, our means. Listen to what Jesus said. Do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on it. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon and in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And a bit further in the lesson, he'll say to those who were listening to him to not even be anxious about getting sick. That's right. You heard me right. Jesus asks, which one of you, by being anxious about your life, can add a single hour to the span of his life? You can't. But you sure can shorten your life by being anxious and by, by worrying. The Apostle Peter will also write, Humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time He'll lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God before, because He cares about you. 
1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Since God is love, and since God loved us so much, don't you think, and I don't offer this as just a cliche, don't you think we ought to let go and let God? Don't you think we ought to live through Him to offer ourselves as living sacrifices? To value the confidence we can enjoy because we don't have to fear death and judgment if we are abiding in Him? Abiding in such a way that His love casts out the fear. And seriously, isn't it time to escape the vicious cycle that the world tries to tell us truly defines success? I love my dad to pieces. I miss him so much at times. He was my source of wisdom when I had a question about something going on in the church. I'd pick up the phone and call him and say, Dad, from your 50 plus years of experience. And there are times that I look over at the phone. I know I can't call him. But there was a part of my dad that was caught up in some of that stuff. He had to have the fanciest of Cadillacs and, and even with his Cadillac he had put the chrome trim around the wheels and all of that stuff. I was driving it one day, the windows were tinted and I got pulled over. When I opened the window in Watsika, the officer looked at me knowing me and he said, where in the world did this car come from? Why are you driving it? Because uh, he had stereotyped the car. And my dad argued with me about how going back and getting my doctoral degree, would, it wouldn't pay off. You're in ministry, you'll never earn back what that degree is going to cost you. And I said to him, Dad, I'm not going back to get a bigger paycheck. I'm going back to do a better job. So here's my challenge for us this week. To let go and let God. Let go of your critical, judgmental spirits. Stop the looks of disgust every time things don't go your way. And let God help you put on love. Read His Word. Look at the lessons of history. Not only your own history, but the history of others. Especially those who have demonstrated sacrificial love by their lives. Anybody read the history of Mother Teresa? Anybody read the history of Corey Tinblum? <clears throat> Anybody read, and I could go on and on, stories of missionaries? One of our own missionaries from the Christian churches and Church of Christ who went down to South America to witness and was murdered by a group of, of um, it was a tribe that were cannibals. Alka Indians? The Alka, or there's a W. Yes. Jim Elliott? Jim Elliott. Mm -hmm. Do you know what his wife did? Mm -hmm. She and her son went back to try 
required to convert those people who had murdered her husband and his father. Can we do that kind of thing on our own strength? No. Absolutely not. But we can let God. We can let go of our own abilities and let God. And the way we do that, John says, is by knowing and believing the love that God has for us. Cindy, I hope I don't ever use humor again in such a way that it could be hurtful. But I promise you ahead of time, if I do, I'm sorry. And tell me about it at the moment so that I won't do it again, hopefully. And you know how much I love you. Forgive me. I'm so tired of people saying, I can't help it, that's the way I've always been. Garbage. Get it together and change your lives. Well, I'll tell you something. We as a church are not going to turn things around in this church, in this community. Not as long as people can point to vindictive, nasty, hateful things that people have said and done. Who have not apologized. And things haven't changed. God. His love. Let's pray. Father God, we come to You as sinners. Broken. Forgive us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment